Hello, and welcome to the Morning Bell podcast, where we interview authors, discuss writing-related topics, and talk about the writing process as a whole. If you want any more information about the Morning Bell and what it is, look up themorningbell.net. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics that you'd like to see discussed, email the co-editor of the Morning Bell, Kezia Lebanski, at the email address kezia at themorningbell.net. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. My name is Joel Martin, and today we're at the Brunswick Street Bookstore. And, Luke, how are you going? Oh, oh no. No, it's up to me now. Um, yes, I'm still alive and still here. Mm-hmm. Not gone traveling anywhere this time. No, you haven't. Still um, still with us. No holidays <laughs> planned in the future? Oh, not anymore. I just started a full-time job. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Which means no holidays. Fair enough. What have you been up to this week? Uh, this week, uh, scraps of editing, mm-hmm. um, starting new work, so that's mm-hmm. um, all very fun. Or not, depending. Or not. You, yeah, yeah, or yeah. not. You never know. <laughs> um, with jobs, it's interesting because um, because I do contract writing. When you take a contract, you you have a gist of what you're going to do, and then your boss or whoever it is that is assigning you the project says, actually, we'd prefer if you do something else after the contract's signed. <laughs> Let me tell you, that happens more often than not for some writers. So you never know. But at least your job is not contract-based. So, like, Yeah, no. It's... You're not temporary. You're full-time staff. Full-time, yeah. So you certainly know what you're going to do. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we hope so. We hope so. Um, and, as usual, today we have a guest on the podcast. Uh, Charles Hall was born and raised in Perth and educated in the 60s at Mount Lawley High and in the 80s at UWA. He's had a wide experience of day jobs, including a truckie's offsider, builder's laborer, shoveler of chuck manure, engineer and high school physics teacher. He has hitchhiked across Australia twice and has lived at various times in Perth, London and Melbourne. He played guitar in a band that had a top five hit record in Perth in the late 60s and in the 90s, was a guitarist and songwriter for the independent Melbourne band, The McQuaids. He currently lives in East Gippsland with his wife, the singer Sue Richmond. How are you doing, Charles? Yep. How has your week been? <clears throat> I'm, I'm fine, thanks, Joel. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've had a pretty full-on week, actually. Mm. Yeah, Sue and I came down from, from our little place out in East Gippsland on Saturday because we had to do a, a book signing in Foster down in South Gippsland mm-hmm. at um, Foster's Little Bookshop, book I think it's called. Mm. Very nice place. And um, we continued on from there into, into Melbourne and we've been going out and to a lot of restaurants mm. <laughs> for dinner each <laughs> night. So we're going to mm. zoom off back to East Gippsland tomorrow. So have you found a way to put the two together, a restaurant and a book launch? Ah. Has that actually happened? <clears throat> Well, a book event, yes. Mm. Even tonight, we parked the car and dropped into the veggie bar <laughs> in Brunswick Street and then cruised on down here. Yep. So it's worked good. out very nicely. <laughs> yeah, and I was talking to Charles just before the podcast started about the number of events um, that you've been doing for the book um, that's just come out. So how many is that number again, Charles? Yeah, I think I counted them up. This is number 39 wow. since the book wow. was launched. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it's been pretty full on. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll be having a little break now. Do you think you've spent the new more, year? Do you think you've spent more time promoting the book than you have writing it, or is it catching up? Oh no, I spend a lot of time writing it. <laughs> but the trouble is, it's very hard to get stuck into writing another book while yeah. you're promoting the previous. Yeah. One. That's very true. Yeah, you just yeah. can't. You really, I think, you really need to to um, move away from the the previous book because as long as you're still talking about it and doing readings from it and so mm. on. Um, you're still sort of living in that world. You're still focusing on it. You need yeah. to figure out how to <clears throat> tell people about it, and it's your mind's in it still. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I've got I've got a guy called Michael who's supposed to be the the uh, protagonist in my new book, and he keeps turning up <laughs> very very much like Nick, who was a protagonist in, in <laughs> Summer's Gone. Because it's in your mind. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I've got to scrub that totally and, mm. and get on with it. <laughs> yeah. And talking about readings, um, you're going to do a reading for us, uh, just a short reading, 
which we'll come to and we'll talk about later on in the podcast. I am. Yep. Yep. So, would you like to give us any background about the reading, or do you want to go straight in? Um, yeah, I'm. I'm going to be talking about a bit about um, how my my early history, mm-hmm. a lot of which was in the music business in the '60s and '70s, in starting in Perth and also in Melbourne. Um, so I have actually used a lot of things that actually happened. And I've added an enormous amount of totally fictitious stuff yeah, to it because yeah. it's a novel, it's not a memoir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just want to read this bit, which is actually, I would say, word for word, exactly what happened. It's nothing to do with music. It was when mm-hmm. I actually hitchhiked across the Nullarbor in 1967 with a girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened to them in Nundru. So I'll have a go at reading it. Go for it. Okay, so Nick and Allison are hitchhiking across the Nullarbor. Um, We stopped once to look out over the cliffs at the Southern Ocean and the Bight. The only light was from the Milky Way and the only sound was the muffled rumble of the waves crashing on the rocks below. You couldn't see much of the ocean at all, just a faint gleam of white foam on the breakers as they came rolling in. I remember thinking it would have to be the loneliest place in the world. It was an hour or so later when we got to Nundru, and Rowley said we needed to get petrol. He warned us to keep an eye out for the Nundru camel, but wouldn't elaborate. All he would say was, he's a bit of a local identity around these parts. We pulled up at the petrol bowser in front of the roadhouse, and Alison and I got out of the car to stretch our legs. Rowley had the bonnet up, checking the oil. I was thinking that the Nundru camel was someone's nickname, so I was on the lookout for anyone who might fit that description. But then a real camel came plodding round from behind the roadhouse, and close up, a camel is a large and powerful animal. Alison and I got out of his way very smartly. He didn't pay any attention to us at all. He was much more interested in a big black and chrome Harley Davidson up on its stand by the other side of the roadhouse. He seemed to be fascinated by it. He eyed it off for a few seconds and started chewing on one of the leather saddlebags. It wasn't long before the bike fell over with a crash onto the concrete and I decided it was time to go in and raise the alarm. A big bearded guy in leather riding gear was standing at the counter. He gave me a baleful look from half-closed eyes when I walked in. Is that your Harley out there? I said. Yeah, maybe it is, he growled. What of it? Well, there's a camel. He's knocked your bike over and now he's eating it. The guy dropped his too-cool-to-breathe act in an instant. Jesus, he said, and he was out the door in a flash. Fuck off, you bastard, I heard him shout. A minute or so later, he came back into the roadhouse looking slightly sheepish. He gave me a crooked grin and said, thanks, mate. And that's the Nundru camel incident. <laughs> word for word, exactly as it, it is. happened. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so it was about part of history, that. So you think he was just eating it because it was leather? Or was there something <clears throat> in it? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't for some ask him. reason. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't stick around and find he, out. He might have had his lunch for the next day in there, for all I know. Oh, dear. Mm. Well, camel... What? Isn't, isn't camels now a pest? In, for most I of think Alzheimer's they've Australia. been out there going forth and multiplying in yeah. large numbers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not fun. Well, fantastic. <laughs> we'll revisit that and more about talking about life experiences in writing uh, within the topic. But before we get there... Let's talk about what we've been viewing or watching. Oh, look, before before we go into that, I've got something just in case anyone's deciding to turn off the podcast now. <laughs> I, I, found, I saw this great quote earlier to paraphrase a um, famous poet, and like, for the life of me, I can't remember who it is. Okay, but, it's better be um, good. This was on a t-shirt. Yep. Uh, to err is human, to err is pirate. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Of course, you right. would bring in something. Of course, like I'd that. bring that in. There now, you go. That makes the rest of the podcast worth it. Yeah, why did you choose this moment to say it, though? It doesn't fit in the movies. <laughs> I had to bring it up now. <laughs> oh, my. You should have said that at the end of the oh, social media. On. So then people don't turn off in disgust. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, films, TV, <laughs> and theater. I know I'm not bringing up Pirates of the Caribbean, yes. by the way. I was about to say that would be a good segue, but nope. <laughs> Just going to leave it. Luke, I think we should start off with Joel again. Now nah, you're the guilty party this I'm time because you had a bad pun, so you oh, need right, to right, right. redeem yourself by. It's not a bad pun; it was a T-shirt. Anyways, with the pun on it. Yes. Go on. Um, me. Okay, so this week I actually attended the Russian Revival Festival, mm-hmm. or one of the films of it, and 
now if I try not to fall asleep while I'm talking here. Um, one thing that stands out to me, well, actually a lot of things that stand out to me about Russian films, mm. but especially Russian war films, that is something that we don't ever get in the Hollywood films. And to, to an extent, you can find it in British films. Mm-hmm. And I haven't watched many other European films of the war. This is World War II. Mm. Um, and it's the Defender story. Yeah. Now, with all the American stories, it's all about upholding freedom. And it's not really defense because they all go out to... They go out of their own country to save freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas, well, for instance, Pearl Harbor, which was an American story, was about defending. Yeah. And that was like the one animal. of the most upstanding yeah. stories from that. But this was um, uh, the battle for, and I'm going to forget the name now, Sebastopol. And this was one of the Jewish hubs in north, in the north of Russia? South. West. I'm going to get this all wrong. I'm getting nods here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, it was one of, the, one of the Jewish hubs in Russia. And one of the early stages of World War II that was fell to the Germans. Mm-hmm. And the story followed um, a girl who became known as Lady Death. She had killed more than 300 people. She was a sniper in the war. And it was pitched in a way where she was speaking to the Americans to ask for their aid. And it just really brought to heart the idea that these these people in Russia, well, not everyone, of course, but certainly these people who are on the front lines, they're fighting for their lives and they're fighting really, really hard for something that another country is just living in peace and not really thinking about the war Mm. as much. And so there's people, you know, of course you've got your um, American soldiers who do fight a lot and do do very well to help help people back in that war. But there are others who just pick up a trophy and swing it around, put it mm. there around their neck and go back to America and mm. say, we did really well. And then there's people like this this girl who didn't have any trophies, but she'd killed 300 and something people. Mm. And she's um, trying to to show to America that they really need help. That This is year 1941, so the war wasn't over yet. Yep. So it's like she was the ambassador and asking yes, for Yes, yes. On, on like yeah. a... Well, it was a student... Um, it was a student party that was speaking to the mm-hmm. Americans at an event there. And... But anyways, back to the, the film comparison. Yeah. Um, again, we don't get a lot of that in Hollywood and a lot of the American stories mm-hmm. of the war. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get some very powerful stories, Saving Private Ryan and some other films like that. But I, I don't think I've ever seen one quite as powerful. This is probably my, probably at the top of my list of mm-hmm. war films now. Interesting. Mm. Was this actually a Russian movie? Yes. Yeah. So it was made by Russians about the Russian experience during the. Yes. The uh, it was also movie. including. Mm. Uh, I think it was made in. It was Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine, yes, Ukraine and Russia yeah. did a joint. Yeah, yeah. it was a joint. Um, Which is interesting considering project. the political climate now. But uh, when was well, this in story? remembrance of the war, it's not a, it's not unlikely That's to true. happen. So, yeah. it's, uh, this was 2014, end of 2014. It was released, I mm-hmm. believe, and it's just arrived in just arrived, yes, yeah, through the um, film festival. Fantastic. All right, so that's a standout for you. Very, yeah, very strong standout. Mm-hmm. Any others? Um, not off the top of my head. I just wanted to speak about that one primarily. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned foreign cinema because I think there's going to be a trend with me as well. Because the film I'm going to mention um, that I watched—yes, I actually did watch something this week uh, that I get to talk about—and that is *The Door*. It's a—it's uh, a German film. Um, so we're getting lower down in Europe now, getting just <laughs> just below. We're getting there, we're getting to Australia. But *The Door* is actually. Um, a really interesting film because it's it's a story about well I don't want to say it's a story about time travel because the time travel travel element is almost it's it's um, they're just backhanded they're like oh yeah it's got time travel in it it's not a big deal we, but it's focused on a specific character and it's hard to talk about this film and not spoil it so I will say. Um, I really, uh, above any other film, and, and this podcast is notorious for spoiling 
things because we want to talk about things critically. Um, but the idea is that please do watch this film. Um, it is a very interesting uh, concept, the idea that uh, – can somebody actually change their behavior even if they know the results of what they're going to do? Is that result just one of the things he or she is going to get wrong? Mm -hmm. Because that's their nature and they can't change that. It's a very interesting concept. So watch that now. What sort of era are we talking? So modern. um, Modern modern set, yeah. Set today. So with that all said, now I'm going to spoil things. So just mute me for like five, six minutes. (laughs) So the premise is about a character um, who's an artist. And the film starts off showing him uh, and with his daughter. And so she's young, uh, probably just five or six, I'm guessing. Um, They don't go into detail. And you just start off the film where he's with his daughter and he's just staying in the house. And he goes across the street and has an affair with his neighbor. Now, this is a very important uh, sequence of events. So he walks across the street, has the affair, comes back across the street, and his daughter has fallen into the pool. And uh, he goes and tries to save her, and she's dead. There's nothing he can do. Um, It fast-forwards five years into the future. You know, um, his career's sort of in ruins. Uh, His wife's left him, obviously. Um... Because the idea is that she blames him because, well, he he was cheating on her and therefore resulted in their daughter's death. So we're set up with this really tragic circumstance. So we know what's we know this, and then the character, the main character, is then um, pulled back in time through this. It's not very well explained, and that's not the point. Uh, like I said before. Like how he gets back in time and how this door exists and how he could go back in time. The science of that is unimportant to the story. So he goes back and he sees himself walking across the street five years before going over to the neighbor's house. And that is a moment where he knows what's going to happen. So he runs to his house to go save his daughter. And the daughter has just tripped and he goes and pulls her out of the pool. Now, this is where I think foreign cinema excels above um, a common uh, Hollywood production, like you were talking about the themes. Because in this, if say, for instance, if we were talking about a genre film, he would have gone back in time and he wouldn't have seen himself. Because, you know, he would have just gone back in time. There wouldn't have been any him, right? But he still exists in this world. And it's really messed up because there's two of him now. So he goes and saves his daughter and puts it to bed, and then he sees himself walking back the street, coming home. And it's, it's, uh, it's, this is probably the most horrific, I guess, scene in the film, uh, where he, uh, he only, he, he, actually, no, he doesn't see himself. We see himself walking across the street. And the past him, I know this is getting very complicated, is rifling through his stuff, trying to clean up the house. So, uh, the... This character then walks into the house and he sees this, what he thinks is an intruder in his house. This, and he doesn't see it because he's got his back turned to him. And he takes like a, some sort of makeshift weapon, like a statue or something. And he's going to like bash it over the head of this guy, who is him. And he turns around and there's a scene where, gut reaction, he just takes the, the, the kitchen knife or whatever and stabs himself. And he dies. Like this past self dies on the floor like is actually bleeding he didn't just like poof into fairy dust or something he dies and his daughter from the stairs sees blood and sees what she thinks is her father over this body so this is this is the premise of the story and i think this is why it excels it's because they set up this fact of he's just gone in the past but now he's in some ways messed up with his daughter because now his daughter doesn't believe that that's her father her father actually died so that's not him and so then the film becomes uh quite um horrendous in the fact that he's constantly trying to fit in now with his previous self and he looks different right like he's got gray hair and stuff so he has to dye his hair he has to he buries himself in the garden um and it's it's this web of entanglement and the idea that can you actually change? Is it actually worthwhile going back if you had the chance to go and change things? And I think it does that concept better than 
any film I've seen that talks about time travel. So, yes, I'm a big fan of this film. It's been a very long time since I've seen something that I've loved this much, but it was really, really well shot and, for the most part, fairly unknown. Like, there's hardly anything about this film. It didn't get a very big uh, release and not a lot of people have seen it. I have to confess I've never heard of it. Yeah, no. Neither did I. It was one of those limited release things. Yeah, it's Mm. a German film and I'm guessing it didn't get a very big audience in the Western world um, Mm -hmm. or America, Australia, rather. And, yeah, and I think it's fantastic. One of those films that... It's like Looper without the violence and the glamour. Um, And I think... That's what makes mm. this film really strong. And that's what I've watched. Charles, what have you got for um, us? Now, living out in East Gippsland in a very remote little <laughs> spot, there aren't all that many cinemas around. <laughs> that's true. Um, I, I can't actually talk about anything recent, but I've mm. recently re-had another look at a movie that came out in 2006 mm-hmm. called Separate Lies. Now, oh, this is an yeah. English film. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've started in Russia through Germany and now we've got to the UK. There we go, we got there in the end. And, um, <laughs> and it's based on a novel by Nigel Bauschen, who's an English author from the, ni- from the 1940s and 50s. And um, my dad had a lot of his books and I grew up reading them. Mm. And this one, the movie is based on his novel, um, A Way Through the Wood, yep. which I always thought was a fabulous novel. It is. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, yeah, this, I had another look at that movie. Um, had Rupert Everett yeah. um, played, I suppose, the villain. And Emily Watson is the woman in it. So we're talking about a middle-aged mm. couple who are living a very affluent life. In This is actually, the novel is set in 1951, but the movie has actually been brought up into the present day. And it doesn't really change anything. It's sort of a mm-hmm. timeless Just sort of story. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the husband, Jim Manning, is a, um, an executive. He actually, in the novel, he, he's, he's an executive in a tobacco company. Because mm. in 1951, that was a perfectly respectable <laughs> thing. That's a good I job, can't, yeah. I can't actually think what... He's just a, an executive in a, com- in a company and he has an office that he has mm. to go to in London and so on. And they're living in the home counties in a nice village. And so Jim Manning's taken up with his work and he doesn't notice that his wife, um, her name's Anne in the movie, um, is bored. And she, she ends up having an affair with, this, uh, with the Rupert Everett mm-hmm. character, Bill Buell. Um, and the whole thing of the movie is that Jim Manning, the husband has very strong views on morality and he, what's right and wrong mm. and so on. Mm. And when a, um, a local is knocked over off his bike by a flash car speeding, he, managed, he works out that Bill Buell, he doesn't know about his wife having an okay. affair with him yet, I see. but he works out, yes, he did it because there's a scratch mm. along the door and so on at, right, at the right height. Um, and he's all in favour, we must go to the police, you know, this has to be sorted out. Mm. Um, but then it turns out later on that um, his wife has actually been having an affair with Bill and she was driving the car at the time. Right, okay. So the whole story is about suddenly this guy, Jim Manning, his whole, you know, he's been pontificating about, you know, what's right and wrong mm. and suddenly he has to backtrack and look at his... Um, his ideas again, right from the top, and uh, hmm. it's absolutely a gripping, a gripping story. But I mean, it's not a um, an action story at mm. all. But uh, yeah, I thought it was terrific, um, and a very good. The movie is a very good um, representation of the book, and they did a terrific job of moving yeah. up into the present day. Um, they did change the ending, which I was a bit sour mm-hmm. on because they, they sort of the ending in the book is really quite bleak and they sort of made a nice happy ending for the yep. movie but mm. yeah <laughs> so but yeah very interesting good movie. Yeah, that's but not exactly out. a current thing it was 20, 2006 I think yeah I think Luke is the only one with a current film on this list because oh. mine was in 2009 so oh well it's not that bad then. <laughs> not that bad that's right <laughs> but no that sounds very interesting 
Mm. We should check it out. Yep. Any other things you've watched that you want to mention? Oh, I think oh, we're all good. I know the, this novel of mine, Summer's Gone, is set in the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I've been maxing out lately on the SBS 60s, the 60s series. Oh, yes. Yeah, which no has just, just been followed by the 70s. Mm-hmm. And now this is totally from the American point of view. Yeah. But they are brilliant. <laughs> Tom Hanks was a producer, and that's an absolutely brilliant series. So, mm. um, yeah, I'd recommend them. Yeah. Um, okay. They go through just about everything. Even there's a whole episode on the British invasion in the 60s of the Beatles and everyone else, and it covers all those sort of things. And um, for someone old enough to remember that era, like mm. me... It was quite a trip down memory lane, yeah. both of them. Mm. They're working on the 80s at the moment, apparently. So I'll be hanging out for that. Interesting. It looks like, look like they're continuing all the way through mm. to I, current day. I imagine so, yeah. Mm. Because in the 80s, we have to... Ro- Ro- Ronald Reagan. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not looking forward to that so much. But <laughs> yeah. That is interesting, no. Mm. Yeah, no, some of... Some of especially... Um, well, international listeners will probably not get why what SBS produces because they're on demand, so this is probably not accessible by them. But SBS actually produces and uh, runs or shows some very, very well-produced documentaries. One thing I did find, I mean, I've watched things on iView on the ABC, mm-hmm. yeah. if you happen to miss them, and that's, that's worked very well. But what they did, the 60s they put out as every episode is a separate thing, but for some reason they doubled up episodes with the 70s. Oh. Now, if you just want to watch... On SBS On Demand, one episode, you've got to sit through the ads, you can't skip them. Yeah. Which normally I, I just record stuff on the yeah, yeah, PVR right. and then you yeah. can jump through them. Um, and then when you go back later to watch the second episode, you've got to watch the same ads <laughs> and sort of try and fight your way through the first. <laughs> so, yeah, I was a bit... <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. I've, well, I've mentioned this about uh, TV um, moving on to digital mediums. I think they really need to change the way they look at how people view things online because mm. It's the only way they make a profit, though. If you're yeah, going to like, do something for free, they exactly. have to put the ads in. But the idea is, is that you need to be able to change your monetization um, in they, order to make it Well, they're making viable. that available through other um, platforms mm. such as... Um, I can't remember what it's called now. But you, you pay like a, a month subscription and you can have any yeah. show, any, anything like that. Yep, so that's, yep. that's happening online as well. Yeah, but. like in the mm. idea is that, yeah, if, if I could, and I'm not sure if this exists, if this is from ignorance, but if, for instance, SBS On Demand had like, pay $4 a month or something and you get our entire catalog online for free. Without ads. Without ads. I'll I would totally be into that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and the thing is they would make more money <clears throat> because that's just how it works. Ads revenue is really low. Per ad, it's actually quite low. So if you were getting people mm. to actually be making a lot more money, it's just about changing the idea we, how we monetize and how we look at media. It was exactly the same thing that happened in newspapers. Classified was a big deal. Um, and mm. the idea was they should have jumped on that online bandwagon of moving their classifieds there and moving it in a way that actually worked before other companies did. And then they were wondering, like, oh, newspapers are not selling because you did not change your monetization. You didn't, you didn't adapt. This is segueing onto like a, a mid-topic mm. before the topic. But um, how do you think that's affecting the monetization and the sales of stories in general? So are you talking about stories as a concept? So, for instance, in film um, books? Stories as a marketing books, as marketing films, um, et cetera. I know the Kindle, for instance, has an unlimited where you can read anything. You just pay a subscription. Yeah. Kindle unlimited, um, yeah. I'm not sure if Smashwords does something like that yet. Yeah. Apple, as in iTunes, mm. I don't know if they have... I know they have books, obviously. They have a bookstore, but I'm not yeah. sure if they have a subscription. They might have something like that. But what about know. film and all that? See, because I'm not, I'm not like, um, I don't know a lot about how uh, the money trail works in film, but I know it works a lot, very, very different compared to, say, books or whatever. Yeah. The money trail is a lot more extensive and it goes, it's very complicated in that respect. It's a bit like mm-hmm. when you would, um, uh, uh, when you want to produce a film, that's an incredibly complex process. So I think maybe that's different. And I don't think I could mm-hmm. comment on that because I just don't know enough about it. But I, I'd say where we're at in the way that TV is monetized, and I'm not talking about 
TV is in channels. We're talking about on-demand TV, so Netflix and streaming mm -hmm. services. Yep. They've got that idea, and it's working really well for them. Yeah. Um, in terms of books, I mean, in my opinion, I think bookstores are doing fine. Like, mm -hmm. we're in one right now. And I think bookstores are doing quite well, um, even with the idea that digital is taking over and all this idea. I think we're at a nice place when it comes to publishing, mm -hmm. where people go into a bookstore and expect published books, and people think, well, I could probably get that book online. But more often than not, new releases, the parity between online and print is actually quite close. It doesn't make a lot of sense, don't get me wrong. But it is quite close. So say, for instance, when George R. R. Martin releases his new um, book, whenever that is, that book will yeah. probably be approximately the same price as me going into Dimmick's and buying the book or Brunswick Street Bookstore. Well, That's not in Australia, but yes, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not in Australia, but that can apply to everything. Um, <clears throat> so I think in that, in that term, I think that's okay. Um, but who knows? I'm sure there's more people qualified to talk about this topic than me. But Charles, you recently published a book with that digital and print. How's that going for you? I've no idea what the there is an e-book of it. Mm -hmm. Some has gone. I haven't even seen it. I don't possess an e-reader myself, mm -hmm. which probably makes me sound very old and decrepit. No, nope, neither do I. <laughs> I love the feel of books printed on paper. I, I particularly like paperbacks. I'm not that keen on hardbacks. Hard I don't know why. They're a bit more stiff than it's you hard worry to, about breaking the cover or something. something nice hard to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> hard to feel comfortable with a hardback. Actually. Yeah, mm. yeah. Unless and, you need uh, to write on something. <laughs> I know a lot of the people that I've met, you know, when we've been going around doing this promotion for the novel, so many of them say they love books mm. and that they would never go for an e-book. Yeah, I agree. In preference to a proper book. Yep. And um, I hope it stays that way. I, I really do. I, yeah, I, I agree with that. That's probably how I approach things as well. If I cannot get a book in print... And, and the only option is to, you know, order something from America. Actually, I was about to say I don't do that, but I actually did do that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, more often than not, if I have the opportunity to get paperback, I get paperback. Just because I like the idea of a physical mm. book. But also I understand the idea of convenience. So, for instance, if people travel a lot and they're on a plane, you know, they can't be lugging around a couple books uh, in a bag. Whereas, you know, they can just pop out a Kindle and have like, you know, 300 books. But honestly speaking, yeah. and here's a question. Are you going to read 300 books on a plane trip or are you just <laughs> going to read one? I don't know. Or are you going to watch the films? Are you going to oh. watch the films? Exactly. You're going to take your, your Kindle e-reader with a thousand books and as soon as there's a movie on the screen in front of you, you put the... Put uh, it that's what I do. I got my, I'm like, I'm <laughs> all, all set, downloaded my books. I'm like, ah, they've got new movies. I'll just watch yep. them. That's the same thing. When but I it works out better for the battery anyways. When I take a flight, I take a paperback. I remember in the 70s, I had to fly from England to America. And Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo was the movie. And on the I've way back, <laughs> a couple of weeks later, the movie was Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo. Or, uh, the question <laughs> is, did right, you actually worth... watch it again or did you read something? I think I might have read something. Oh, okay. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> oh, I was worth watching a second time, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Who gets tired of Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo? I've seen that film. It's good. But probably not the second time. So let's move on to the topic. And mm. as we mentioned at the start from the exit, I'm interested in talking to you, Charles, in respect of how does real-life experiences translate into fiction? Because the book is still fiction. You describe it as that, inspired yep. heavily by nonfiction. Um, and we've had authors come on, and they've said similar things. But often it's the other way around. It's um, This book is all fiction, but only themes or you know, a certain way of approaching a topic or something is from real life. Whereas in your book, it's a little on the other side. Yeah. Um, there is um, a lot that actually happened in the book. Mm -hmm. um, but fortunately for me, a lot that didn't happen. Um, I mean, the first line of the book is, Helen died on the day Sergeant Peppers went on sale. Now, that part thank God, is totally fictitious. That mm. is the main thing that the story is about. Um, in a way, it tells us the whole story of the novel in the first line, which I recently discovered. Someone said, oh, that's a good thing. If you can tell the whole story in the first line and then fill it out, you're doing well. So I was mm. like, oh, I didn't even know, but I've done it. Mm. Um, 
Um, the idea of mentioning Sergeant Peppers was to set the time. Like the era was 1967 when Sa the Beatles released Sergeant Pepper. Um, but um, yeah, a lot of it, because I, I grew up in Perth in, um, in the 50s and mm. early 60s. And in those days, if you had spent your whole formative years in Perth, all you wanted to do was get out <laughs> and head east mainly, mm -hmm. <laughs> anywhere except Perth. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I actually played in bands in Perth. Mm -hmm. I was one of, the, one of the kids who, as soon as I heard the Beatles in about 1963, I think, immediately decided I was going to learn to play the guitar, yeah. like just about every other kid <laughs> yeah. of my age. Um, <laughs> And in 1965, I was supposed to be doing my, my leaving certificate at high school. <coughs> and I decided to join a band and do the leaving as well, which fortunately I managed to do. Um, I think I decided for the last two weeks before the exams, I had to study. Mm. So I didn't do any gigs with the band for those two weeks. And for, I was lucky enough to get through. Um, so, yeah, I've been in playing in the sort of pop music or rock music scene in Australia for a long time and um, and then I, I ran into some people who were from Melbourne in 1967 and um, uh, we ended up travelling back to Melbourne, I hitchhiked with a girl across mm -hmm. the, the, the Nullarbor to Melbourne and various things like that and then Sue and I got married in Melbourne, that was different to the girl I hitchhiked mm -hmm. across with you see with girls coming out of the woodwork here um, <laughs> and we went back to Perth and we had a started another band and we had a hit record in mm. in Perth called Sunshine River which had been written by a folky friend of ours yeah so it was sort of folk rock um, and that went zooming up the charts so we had we've still got copies of these charts you know the top 40 mm. from 6KY and 6PR and the radio stations of the time in Perth where there's Gemini, a band, with Sunshine River right up at number four, and these other bands you may have heard of called the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan yeah, sort of yeah. way down below us. Mm. Um, of course, they sold a lot more, and they went zooming up to number one, but <laughs> that's as high as we got was number four. Yeah. Um, and then we, we, we went on a trip. We got a, one of those P&O trips to the UK mm. on the strength of that record with the band. Um, that was one of, that did not make its way into the novel. I'm going to try okay. and fit that bit into my next novel, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> um, but anyway, so when I was, I've actually wanted to write a novel for a long time. I remember at the age of, it must have been about 14, probably just before I heard the Beatles mm. and, and took up the guitar instead. I actually started writing a novel and I think I got it to chapter three. And chapter one was quite long and detailed and chapter two was a bit shorter and chapter three I was about two pages and uh, it sort of petered out and I stopped because it was just too hard mm. <laughs> writing a novel when you're 14 is hard work <laughs> um, so yeah so in, in later life I've gone back to the idea mm. and I looked back over my life and okay what am I going to write a novel about and, and I decided that my early life in particular is quite um, had a lot of bizarre stuff in it. Eventful, yeah. Eventful, like hitchhiking across the Nullarbor. Yeah. And then I hitchhiked back again because Sue and I tried to drive back in our $29 car, which got as far as Port Pirie. <laughs> we had, uh, That's not bad. <laughs> $29 was... Um, that was about a week's wages yeah, in those that's days. Yeah, okay. And it didn't get past Port Pirie. Mm. So, and we had our... our um, our firstborn by mm. then. So Sue and the little one went on the train back to Perth and I hitchhiked back. So that's where that hitchhiked across Australia in brackets twice <laughs> came, came from. That's right. And um, so there was all this stuff and I thought, okay, I can use that, I reckon, mm. and just twist it around and change it and, and get it into a novel. And that's that bit I read earlier about the Nundru camel that yeah. actually did happen. And I think that is probably the only thing that really went in into the book without changing it at all, apart from right, the names okay. of the people involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, this is something I came across when I was reading um, 
The Shark Net by Robert Drew. Now, that's a memoir. Mm. Um, but in the, And then he's talking about stuff that happened in the, the late 50s and early 60s, a long time ago. Mm. And yet he has detailed dialogue. Yeah. Now, come on. Yeah. Come on, Robert. There's no way you can actually remember, unless you wrote it down at the time, what people said and yeah. so on. And um, so, yeah, the, the bit about the Nundru camel, the, the bits of, there's not much dialogue in it, but they are sort of made up. But the events yeah. happen. Yeah, that's right. But do you think, in that respect, what, what made you decide to make it fiction instead of a memoir? Like, what, where was the decision made? Well, yeah, some of the people that are... I mean, I've sort of told this story. At, I've been doing talks in libraries mm. and so on about Summer's Gone, and people have actually said that to me. You know, you, they sort of said, well, it sounds like you've had a pretty eventful life. Why, don't, why didn't you put it all into a memoir? Yeah. <laughs> to which I reply, well, you have to be already famous or very rich to get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might eventually try and scribble out a memoir, but... Mm. Basically, it'll be like summer's gone with all the interesting bits taken out. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Well, this way you can still say it's part memoir and it's also part creative. It's it's both yeah. elements. Yeah. yeah, using elements from your life. But in that respect, do you think? All right, if you were to get rid of all of that, get rid of all your own personal history, and still write summer's gone, do you think you could have done it? Wow. Do you think the soul would have been there? This is my first novel, mm-hmm. and that was the easy option, I reckon, because mm-hmm. I had all this stuff that I didn't have to make up. Yeah. Mm. Though the more you, when you, what, the bits that I have actually made up, you know, the fic, totally fictitious bits, um, I think the more you, the more you work at it, the easier that gets. I suppose you become a proficient liar. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I mean, yeah. half of them a memoir is fictionalizing reality really yeah. because you try like and, in the robert drew yeah you try and, you know a lot of that massage the truth level. yeah it must have been he could not remember that yeah with the detail that it's in the book yeah brilliant book by the way mm. Sharknet, i love it and when people ask me sometimes what what's a book similar to your book what's and i and i sort of think well even though it's not fiction um the shark net is probably the most because it's about someone growing up in Perth. And um, and then right at the end, he heads across to Melbourne. Mm. <clears throat> so, mm. yeah. But, um, yeah, I think my next effort at writing a novel will be certainly more fiction and less. I mean, yeah. you can't keep revisiting the same old stuff. I, no, I yeah. wonder, I wonder if, you know, you said the easy option was to take real life and to fictionalise it, but... I don't know, that sounds hard to me because the idea is when you go into real life, you're trying to think of how you felt at that time or how that character felt it, would have felt in your place. Mm. You know, and, and also beyond that, even to an emotional level of do I want to talk about these relationships? Do I want to talk about this life, which is a very long time ago, and then bringing all that back? Yeah. Um. Yeah, one difficulty is that the first-person narrator, mm-hmm. whose name is Nick in yep. Summer's Gone, that would probably be largely based on me, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. except it's a more, um, probably probably more like me at the age of late 20s rather than 19 right, okay. and 20. Because mm-hmm. I know Nick is much more self-assured than I was at that age. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So... Um, I suppose, in a way, it's sort of like going back and rewriting your life and making yourself look better than you really were, <laughs> in a way. Yeah. yeah. That's why it's better to say that it's fiction. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. But the other characters in the book, they are certainly not based on anyone, even though the, the people who were there at the time, th- these are fictitious characters. Yeah. So you, did you have to put the disclaimer at the start? None of these characters are uh, based oh, yeah. on with real... the exception of public figures. Or... Yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that is true. Was there any um, was there any feeling that you did want to put in characters that you had met or that you knew quite personally at the time, or did you decide, mm. nah, I won't no, try that? No, 
for a start, it would have been too difficult because I actually still know some of these people. <laughs> and um, you know, I did when I'm coming up and saying, you swine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't want to yeah. make it personal. It no, doesn't need to yeah. be. No. no, so I can truthfully say that apart from Nick, who's sort of like an older version of me, right. everyone else in it is entirely fictitious. Mm. Mm. That's a good way of doing it, I think. Yeah. Avoid the, the oh, yeah. uncomfortable uh, reunion meetings. Mm. Yep. With Mikey's. No, I have actually <laughs> recently, Sue and I have recently got in contact with the girl that I did hitchhike across. All right, okay. The, the Nullarbor with. Yeah. And she's now living in, in the UK. And, um, yeah, mm. it's been amazing. Because mm. we, haven't, we haven't, for decades, we haven't met. Yeah, spoken, uh, yeah. And I have, and actually a lot of people have turned up who, who we've not met for decades mm. simply because they see the publicity and turn up at a, a library talk or something. Yeah. Mm. You know, and there's all these grey-haired geezers turning up <laughs> and they have to introduce themselves because I can't recognise them. Because <laughs> when, I mean, you don't see someone yeah, for 40 true. years. It's, uh, it's a bit hard. <laughs> Brings it all rushing back. And you mentioned that um, at the launch, um, the old band got back together. Yeah, well, the one that had the, the, the hit in Perth. Mm. Unfortunately, it was only a hit in Perth. It did nothing anywhere else in Australia. Mm. So we were able to use that for the launch in Perth, but that was it. Mm. And, um, mm. yeah, we had the original band that recorded Sunshine River back in 1969. And that was a story in itself. Yeah. Where um, we were, in those days, we were playing at a restaurant out in the hills, out of Perth. And a couple of radio DJs happened to be in the audience with their partners. And we did this song, which was an original written by this folky friend I mentioned. Mm. And they came up after the, the bracket was over and they said, we love that song. We want you to record it. Mm. So, you know, I'm not sure whether they were smoking cigars at the time. but <laughs> Or something else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they could have been in those days. Um, yeah, so that, that was just like out of a fairy tale mm. in a way. And so for a short time, we were, we were pop royalty. Yep. Your time um, in the sun. Until we yeah. did our next record, we went back in and we got clever. <laughs> we got clever and it was all flutes and, and we, we, we forgot the idea that we should actually have a very, a very catchy chorus. Yep. Because that's what sold the, the first song. <laughs> and that stiffed. Mm. Yeah. I think it got to, that to number 39 in the top 40 and that was it. <laughs> So we went from being pop royalty back to being pop commoners very smartly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was fun while it lasted. Yeah, that's right. Life experiences, and now you have a book for it. Yep. That's mm. right. Luke, any questions? Uh, no, actually. Not mm-hmm. at the moment. It's... I think it's a pretty... You've covered it all, pretty much. It's interesting to me, uh, one specific idea is that would you then, in the future, you mentioned going back and writing something else, do you think you would write a book, you mentioned mostly fiction have you ever thought like i had my taste of writing i'll go and do a crime novel now you know like or something yeah, off kilter completely like that. Different, different genre or yeah something. science mm. fiction <laughs> i yeah. i read a hell of a lot of science fiction when i was young mm-hmm. i loved it you know all those isaac asimovs yeah and, yeah mm. that's right oh, god i can't even remember them now um but no, in the end, I realised that the ones that I liked best were good stories that just happened to be set out on another planet or in outer space or something. Mm. And that's yeah. when I started reading novels that were actually set on Earth and that weren't science fiction at all. Yeah, because <laughs> the setting aside, you just wanted a good story. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I think that's when I started reading the my dad's um, Nigel Belshan novels and... John Wyndham, I was always particularly fond of. He mm-hmm. was the, the Day of the Triffids and those. Ah. And they're sort of, they are, I suppose, regarded as science fiction, but they're more about people and relationships between people rather than just the, you know, the shiny spacecraft and so yeah. on. The, like dysto- Gwyn- the dystopian Gwyn- style yeah. relationship, yeah. 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 Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, I think we're coming up to the end. Um, thank you, Charles, for coming along to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. It's been great. Thank you. And tell us where we can find Summer's Gone and where can we find you online? Okay, well, it's in um, all good bookstores, mm-hmm. including this one from now on, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's available online from Margaret River Press. That's right. And um, my website, which is www.charleshall.com, 
com.au, which is pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got the link there so you can get to Margaret River Press and, and so on. And mm-hmm. also I've got a link to my Facebook profile, which is which I just put rubbish up on from time to time. Well, you're doing a lot better than me on that on that <laughs> front, so that's yeah. good. No, actually Sue and I sort, sort through our old photos and say, oh, here's one of Gemini. With, <laughs> with, you know, and I, I'm wearing like a bow tie and a suit <laughs> or something, so we put that up just yep. for a laugh. So yeah, That's fun. pretty good. Yep. So is there any old photos and some has gone or anything like that? Well. Was there a temptation <laughs> to put those in? No. no. <laughs> Being fiction. Yeah, yes. that's true. No, if, if, you, if you go putting out a thing and try and pretend it's fiction and then, then you've got photos in there oh, as really? well, no one's going to believe it. Oh, I'm sure you could Photoshop those faces out. It would have been fine. Yeah. yeah, like the ones on Street View where they've all been blurred out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fantastic. Well, you can follow him there. Luke? Uh, as you? usual, my website is thesoulshardchronicles.com and you can find me on Twitter at thesoulshard. Fantastic. Anything you got coming up? Plans? Holidays? Uh, not for a while, no. Nope. Nope. No just, holidays. Just steady Luke. <laughs> just steady Luke, that's right. Steady Mr. Manly. Falling oh. asleep, maybe. Mm. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, you can follow The Morning Bell, uh, themorningbell.net. Um, they have a edition of the magazine coming out, and that is on <laughs> November the... Um, I'm looking at the editor for confirmation. 27th. There you go. November the 27th and you can come into <laughs> Brunswick Street Bookstore and f- for the launch, I'm sure the details will be up on the Morning Bell website as well as um, Brunswick Street's uh, website. So, it's fantastic. It's been a great year. Um, that doesn't mean we're signing off. We go right up until December. So, keep listening into the podcast and there'll be more content for you. As for myself, you can find me at the Pen of Joel on Twitter and thepenofjoel.com and that's about it. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.